Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Can you dig <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to sign up for all our wares, to check out our free content. We have a new piece up by... Uh, Lyman Stone about uh, basically fleshing out that idea of creating FEMA camps to quarantine COVID people. I expect people will have interesting responses to it. And um, today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. More about them in a little bit. So uh, today, continuing this uh, trend of trying to get people on who we've long wanted on but never had on, um, we have one of the, I would say, I, I hate doing compliments. I hate them almost as I hate giving them almost as much as I hate receiving them. Um, uh, but one of the very few people that I can watch almost at random on MSNBC and be assured that I won't get angry um, in any way. Um, and I say that about, there's some people on MSNBC I like and I'm friends with, but uh, he's one of the guys who really does play it down uh, the center in terms of calls him like he sees him, and he's one of the more interesting. Uh, cephologists around. Um, we have uh, Steve Kornacki. Steve, welcome to The Remnant. Thank you. That's, I think my specialty is trying to avoid getting people angry, so I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I don't mean this as an insult, but you know, vanilla is the most popular flavor in America because it's no one's first choice, but it's every, it's the least, it's the least objectionable option. So there is something to be said for being vanilla, uh, which I'm not saying you are. I, I, just, I think know, that's right. But. No, uh, listen, I, I've been called a lot worse. <laughs> and Indeed, I, I have as well. Um, so there are two reasons why I want to have you on here. One is to do just straight rank punditry, um, because I think you're one of the better people at it. And two, you're part of this select group of people who are sort of... Um, like that character at the beginning of a Godzilla movie who suspects something really bad is afoot and is trying to warn people, but no one will listen. You're one of these people who sort of has the same view about how weak parties create all sorts of problems in our country. And I want to talk about that in a little bit, but let's sort of just start with the punditry. When normal people, and I first to concede I'm not one of them, come up to you and ask, what the hell is going to happen in November? What's your standard answer? It's become, tell me the trajectory of the pandemic. Yeah. And I'll give you a sense of, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be said for a lot of, you know, pundits are making this observation, but I think there's a lot to be said for it. Just the idea of when you're talking about an incumbent running for reelection, what is the mood of the country? 
right? I mean, it was it was a really depressed mood in 1980 when Reagan ousted Carter. It was a really depressed mood in 92 when Clinton ousted Bush. If, if the mood is something like that, whether it's the economy, whether it's a pandemic, it, it's hard to see an incumbent surviving. But if you tell me the summer brings breakthroughs in treatment, um, if one of these you know vaccines, this thing at Oxford they're talking about happens to pan out, if for whatever reason the the, the fall recurrence we're all talking about doesn't pan out and you get to September, October, and it really feels like we're turning a corner. I, I mean, we may be looking at, at, at transformed politics. And I, I just, I, I am, nobody knows, obviously, least of all me, what the course of this pandemic is going to be. And so I, I just, I, I could look at all the stats we have right now and tell you, I, I don't think if the election's happening today, Trump wins, but the election's not happening today. And, and, and yeah. six months is a long time in politics. I imagine six months is a long time in pandemics too. Yeah. Six months is a really long time in a quarantine. Um, just ask my family. Um, yeah, but so, I mean, I mean, I know you know this, but isn't part of the problem, you know, that even in 2016, a lot of the old rules already seemed to be going by the wayside. You know, there were there were a half dozen, two dozen things that Trump did that should have just destroyed a conventional candidate. Instead, to use the Godzilla metaphor, you know, there's this trope in Godzilla movies where where the hapless Japanese army tries to lure Godzilla into biting the electrical cables. And then when he bites the electrical cables, he it makes him stronger. Trump kept like biting the third rail of American politics and it kept making him stronger. And but now you have this situation where. Um. You know, all those political scientist guys at Yale who do these studies about these tweaks to the GDP mean this and mean that and all the rest. No one's ever seen those models work on an economy where you could have a double digit drop in a quarter on the economy. And that, I think that cuts both ways. You just don't. We're all flying blind here in a way that I don't think anybody in living memory that anybody alive today has any really great precedents to, to draw on on all this. No, I, I completely. I mean, any of the models, any of the the uh, economic models about growth, about uh, unemployment rate, any of that stuff that, that have been used for past elections, I, I think don't apply here. I, I, I suspect, as I said, there's something there about are we does it feel like we're in the upswing or does it feel like we are still entering yeah. into a worse situation? I suspect that's going to be something that, uh, that, uh, you know, holds sway here. That said, I mean, I, I, there's always the part of me too, that looks at it and says, you know, Churchill got written through world war II and then was thrown out of office. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, now, I mean, a situation, a little different. I mean, Britain was in rubble. Um, you imagine if we were to get medical breakthroughs on this and, and it seems like we're heading in the right direction, the economy is probably going to respond quickly. You know, I, I still think there's a, there's a sense of that, but yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, I, it's hard for me to look at the current situation and and I love talking about politics. I love trying to analyze elections, but I just think there's a huge, huge, massive variable here that's never been tested before that there's no precedent for. Um, and it's going to unfold in, in massively unpredictable ways over the next six months. And, and I think that is going to be the thing that, that drives the election ultimately. And, and we just can't, it's frustrating. We could, we could talk about different possibilities, but you really yeah. can't project it. Um, and also sort of a more recent um, precedent would be just Papa Bush in 92. He won the Iraq war at a 91% approval. 
Yeah. And then we had a pretty mild recession and he just took it in the neck. Um, uh, I mean, where do you come, by the way, where do you come down on the eternal, you know, Protestants versus Catholics debate about whether or not Ross Perot cost W the HW the election or not? I love the question. I, I am firmly on the side of um, the way I put it is I believe that Ross Perot was a symptom of HW's problems and wasn't the cause of them. Um, I, I don't believe he, he cost him the election. I know Bush certainly believed that. Um, I, I look at it as Ross Perot emerged, the Larry King interview in 92, where he said, hey, if the volunteers put me on the ballot in all 50 states, I'll run. And it set off this, this whole Perot movement. That took place February 20th, 92. At that point, George H.W. Bush's approval rating was already under 40%. That was two days after Pat Buchanan had gotten nearly 40% of the vote in the New Hampshire primary. Bush had big problems. I think at that point in 92, there was still a sense that the Democrats were going to nominate an unelectable candidate. Everybody th- talk about the rules of politics being reassessed, right? In 92, the rule on, on uh, presidential candidates who had had affairs was it's Gary Hart. It, it can't be done. Right. That was going to be Bill Clinton in 92. That was, that was you know, I didn't inhale was yet to come. There was this whole sort of mythology that had built up around the, the, you know, there was talk about the Republican attack machine and how successful it had been in taking down Dukakis. And can you imagine what it will do to Bill? So there was this sense that, that Bush was in a stronger position than I think in reality he was in February 92 when Perot emerged. And I think Perot's growth in the spring of 92, when he really got to the top of the polls, was a function of Bush's weakness and Clinton's character problems. And Clinton ended up being a stronger candidate, you know, it, it sort of got got a second look from voters in the summer of 92. Perot's numbers dropped. Perot got out of the race for 10 weeks, came back in in the fall, got up to 20 percent. And on Election Day, when you looked at the exit polls, there was it was half. If you asked pro voters, who's your second choice? It was half Bush, half Clinton. And I, and I just think when you look back at 92, I don't know if these names mean anything to people anymore, but like when you look back at 92, there were all of these populist currents that were all over the political spectrum. I mean, there was Pat Buchanan on the right. There was Jerry Brown. I mean, Jerry Brown was running like this was the radicalized version of Jerry Brown yeah. in 92. You know, that was there. Paul Songus got this like sort of radicalized professional class that was obsessed with the deficit and debt. I, I, just, I just think there really were. Perot was this this rare thing. that's almost like a unicorn in American politics. It was a populist movement that truly drew, you know, from across the political spectrum. So um, I should have, because I'm, I'm, this is one of the things I'm absolutely terrible about in this podcast, is, is actually introducing and identifying the guest properly. I should tell listeners um, that you wrote a really great book, a uh, really interesting book, The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism, which is why I think some of our listeners would be like, why does this guy remember the 1990s so well when he was in grade school or whatever it was when all this was happening? Um uh, so I'll stay, let's stay on the nineties for a minute. We can get back to the punditry in a second. Um, I have long had this theory that one of the things that H one of HW's biggest problems was that he was the first vice president, sit, the first sitting vice president elected to the presidency since Martin Van Buren mm-hmm. and was, um, and Martin Van Buren was the only sitting vice president elected to the presidency since they changed the Constitution so that the vice president and president ran on the same ticket. I think I have that right. And um, there is something in the American political DNA that just says 
um, we don't really like vice presidents that much, um, particularly when um, they are not thrust into greatness from a tragedy like an assassination or something. They are by definition sort of beta male, at least historically, because there have only been male ones. And um, and if it hadn't been for the fact that Michael Dukakis was just such a, you know, one of my favorite Robin Williams jokes I recently mentioned somewhere on this podcast is uh, where Robin Williams says, um, I hope they make sex an Olympic sport just to see what the East Germans come up with. Um, <laughs> I always thought that Michael Dukakis was like designed in an East German lab to be a bad candidate. And, um, and so people were really voting for a third Reagan term. And then Bush isn't a third Reagan president. And you just get this sort of exhaustion with the guy, even though I think in retrospect, he was this incredibly honorable and decent president and did a much better job. You know, Jonathan Rausch makes a very good case for his presidency. Um, but I'm just so you know, I'm still of the school. Let me put it this way. The last thing I read on this, which was a while ago, persuaded me that Perot did cost them the election. Mm-hmm. But the thing I read before that said <laughs> it didn't. So right. um, it's one of these things that comes up, you know, um, on panels all of the time. So um, part of your indictment of the 1990s is uh, deeply tied in with Newt Gingrich and his and the use of C-SPAN cameras, which is something we've talked about a couple times on here. Why don't you just sort of explain it to, to listeners and we'll go from there. Yeah, and I mean, I've, I've, I know you've talked about Newt a lot. I've, I've, I've heard a lot about it, what you've said. And, and yeah, I mean, my... My view of Newt, the, the Newt Gingrich who comes to Congress in January 1979, it was his third try, you know, running for the House, is, is that the Newt Gingrich who came to Washington and that we've known in, in various different sort of um, forms for the last 40 years or so, I, I think what the, the through line that I see with Newt is he is somebody who has always been trying, at least for the last 40 years, he's been trying to tap into the power of populism. I think that's the thing that's always fascinated him, the idea that there's a sort of a populist mass that you can tap into. It has resentments towards the elites that are trying to, you know, govern them and rule them and talk down to them. And, and I think he's always frequently trying to find that um, that positioning in, in politics. And, and so when he came to the House in 1979, um, Republicans had been the minority party at that point for a quarter century. 1954, Democrats had become the majority party, and it hadn't even been close. I mean, these Democratic majorities, I, I try to tell people who didn't live through this, um, you know, we had in a midterm in 2018, the Democrats needed to pick up a couple dozen seats and they could get back uh, the House. We didn't have midterms like that in the 70s and yeah, the 80s yeah. and even into the into 1990. Um, so there was this psychology, the Republican Party that, that uh, in Washington had that they were always going to be in the minority. It just was impossible to get the majority. You get the best deal you can from the Democrats. You try to get along. The Republican leadership uh, tended to be um, a lot more accommodating. I think there were a lot more authentically moderate, even liberal Republicans who were in the in the ranks. And Newt basically got there, and, and, and his message was, we need to, we have a loser's mentality. We need to be the aggressors. This needs to be, we need to make clear, dramatic deep contrast with the Democratic Party. We need to do it every day. We need to tell people there's a difference between a Republican and a Democratic majority. And, and that is the only way we're going to get there. And he believed that one of the ways to do that um, was to bring drama to the House. And, and, and the way, you know, the tool that was C-SPAN, the C-SPAN camera was turned on in 1979, just as Newt arrived 
in the House. And, and Newt basically believed it, it was sort of the same thing that you saw happening on talk radio at the same time. Conservative talk radio was popping up and really growing at the same time. And, and Newt was basically telling them, your audience, telling Republicans, your audience is not whoever happens to be in the chamber when you're talking. Your audience is the camera. Your audience right. is the people watching watching at home. And you want them every time they're tuning in to understand within five minutes the difference between a Republican and a Democrat, the difference between, you know, he called it the conservative opportunity society. It was a play on the, the great society, the conservative opportunity society and the liberal welfare state. That was sort of that was what he wanted people seeing. And it, it, it led to also I mean, there was this big thing I go into in the book. I'm sure you talked about this confrontation on the House floor with Tip O'Neill, who was right. the Speaker of the House in 1984. And, and, and here's Newt Gingrich, who's this just this gadfly character, baits Tip O'Neill in front of the full House into this, this war of words. O'Neill bubbles over with rage, ends up having his words taken down. It's this dramatic thing that had never happened to a Speaker before. It's basically <laughs> a reprimand. Um, and I just, I always remember, I went back and, and watched the tape for this. And it's so striking because when that spectacle ends, Newt Gingrich leaves the, the floor of the House. He folds up his papers, walks up the aisle, and you see the entire Republican side stand and cheer. The Democrats are sitting down. And I, I look back at that as I think it's sort of the moment that Republicans who'd been really skeptical of Newt saw the possibility of what he was doing. Yeah. You know, so, you know, uh, full disclosure, my wife worked for him for several years, um, did not really drink the Kool-Aid. I mean, got along well with him, but there was always, as you say, this populist thing. Newt was always fixated with being, he kind of wanted to run a front porch campaign where the this people-powered movement would spontaneously arrive and carry him to the White House and he wouldn't have to do the work. Um, and, uh, but Newt had a point back then, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, one of the things that the, the Democrats had been really, I remember talking to some Hill types about this a long time ago, that the old Democratic majority, one of the brilliant things that they did was they attended to the care and feeding of Republicans. So, you know, you, you, you give enough Republicans enough stuff in appropriations and whatnot that they can fend off primary challenges, they can fend off problems, you keep them a well-fed minority, and you start to get that loser mentality. There's a great famous line. What was his name? Um, uh, Michael, Robert Michael. Michael Robert, yeah. yeah. Who's the, uh, minority leader of the Republicans that Newt? did he directly dethrone or was he like, he, he could see steps? the writing on the wall. It was officially yeah. friendly, but he knew it was coming. Yeah. And Bob Michael did his quote in time magazine in the, in the eighties saying something along the lines of, Every morning when I put on my tie and brush my teeth, I look in the mirror and I think, how am I going to lose today? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, I mean, there was some point to it. But, I mean, the thing, the thing that really interests me is about the sort of the Newt C-SPAN thing was that it wasn't until your book and then also uh, Yuval Levin's newest book, this A Time to Build book, that I've really soured on. I mean, I, I love Brian Lamb. I generally think C-SPAN is one of the best intentioned and private enterprises in American life. But I, I've really soured on the role that C-SPAN has played in American politics, unintentionally entirely, because, as, you know, one of the points that Yuval makes is that you cannot negotiate in public. You just can't do That's it, right. right? You have too many stakeholders who see you 
you know, uh, floating a trial balloon with their interests attached to it, and they shut you down before you can get the quid pro quo or the reciprocity or the thing that would make it worth it even to your stakeholders, it just makes, sunlight makes negotiation sort of impossible. And, um, you know, I mean, even the Constitution was written in a smoke-filled <laughs> secret chamber. Um, and uh, and the thing about your, the point about your book was is how much really Newt is responsible for this trend in American politics of turning politics into a form of entertainment, which I think has always been there because that's how the human mind is wired. But it was really that episode with Newt that turned what happened and what, what was happening in Washington into a TV show more than anything else. And I think that is one of, I mean, we're going to talk about the weakness of the parties in a bit, but that is to me, one of the gravest problems we've got in our politics today. And one of the reasons why you can see how it leads to someone like Donald Trump is it's a, you know, it's from starting from a boring PBS style TV show to reality show is sort of the arc you get beginning with new. Does that make sense? I think so. And I, I think what complicates it and what, what kept occurring to me when I was looking back at the, the rise of Newt in the 80s and the early 90s is um, he did have a point. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll give you one example of this. And I, I think, I think a, an underrated but crucial moment in, in the evolution of, of how Washington works is the transfer in January 87 from Speaker Tip O'Neill he was somebody, you talk about Bob Michael, Bob Michael's nickname, Peoria, Illinois. Mr. Nice Guy was literally his nickname. He loved to <laughs> golf with Tip O'Neill. He loved Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill loved him. They got along. They golfed. They played cards. Um, Newt didn't golf. Newt didn't play cards. He wasn't, um, he, he was always perplexed by this relationship, but they got along. And a lot of Republicans, even if they didn't like his politics, had an affection for Tip O'Neill. They switched from Tip O'Neill in January 87. He retired to Jim Wright. Jim Wright from Texas became the new speaker. Jim Wright was a strategic, disciplined speaker who had a vision of taking back power from the executive branch, investing it in the House. He was going to be an active speaker. And he was somebody who saw all sorts of tools in the speakership that Tip O'Neill and previous Democratic speakers hadn't used. He was going to use those. So he was Mm going to take what was then a three-decade Democratic majority, and he was going to start taking the power that previous Democratic speakers had used, he was going to start using it. So I'll give you the example. I think this is the turning point. Newt had been making noise about Wright for about a year. And at the end of 1987, Wright had this book deal in Texas. It was to publish some uh, memoirs of his, some speeches of his. A bunch of his sort of friends back in Fort Worth were were buying it, and he was getting a royalty. It, It was getting a little attention. It wasn't getting a lot of attention. Newt was calling for an ethics investigation. He was calling him corrupt. And Michael and the rest of the Republicans did not want to touch this because the rule of Washington was you don't shoot the general. This is the Speaker of the House. You let this go. The the House was governed by a sort of a gentleman's code. If one member says this is okay in my district, it's not the place of any other member to question it. So Newt's doing this and he's on his own. And then you get to November 87 and Wright wants to put a tax hike through. He wants to pass a bill, get into a confrontation with Reagan. This is the whole thing. He does not have the votes for it. The Republicans are all no's. There's dozens of Democrats who are no's. They put it on the floor. And I think the number, I think it's 207 to 206. It's going to fail. 207, 206. The Republican side starts cheering. They think they've won. The clock has expired. And Wright refuses to bang the gavel. And this is something Tom DeLay would do years later. Wright refuses to bang the gavel. 
And he's got a member from Texas who he got elected through his power back in Texas, who has voted uh, no on this thing, calls him back from his office. This thing takes 15 minutes. Guy comes back from his office, walks onto the House floor, looks at Wright, changes his vote. Now it's 207, 206, yes. Wright gavels it down. Tax cut passes. Republicans, including Bob Michael, were aghast. This, this yeah. wasn't done. And that was, it was the week after that is when Bob Michael gave Newt Gingrich the blessing to pursue an ethics case against Jim Wright. And a year and a half later, that led to Jim Wright actually being forced to resign as speaker. It's just traumatic, incredibly traumatic moment in Washington. And I think that's a moment pe- people look back at the Wright resignation as this turning point. Yeah. But yeah. I think that was the moment that created it. So I, there were two things going on there, I think. Um. All right, so we've we can easily circle back to the '90s in a second, but let's get the rank punditry out of the way. So, um, um, one of my hobby horses for a while now, explaining how we got Trump, um, why Trump squeaked it out in 2016, um, was that Hillary Clinton was uniquely unpopular for all sorts of reasons. Fair and unfair. Like, you know, when I make this point, there are a lot of progressive types who say, yeah, that's because you guys unfairly demonized her for 20 years. Certainly, (laughs) there's certainly some merit to that point of view, uh, you know, and I'll plead guilty to my share of it. Um, But whatever the reason, I mean, just as an objective fact, whether it's fair or unfair, just seems to me it was obviously true that like the jar of peanut butter, the the sort of right-wing media establishment had been loosening that jar for a very long time for Donald Trump. And, um, and that, so therefore one of, and so, but the the flip side of that is I also argued that Bernie Sanders was, um, more, seemed more popular than he really was because there was anti-Hillary sentiment among Democrats too, blue collar Democrats. It seems to me that that position, that, that take has largely been established now because of Bernie's underperformance in the same places he did really well in 2016. How do you adjudicate all that? Do you, I mean, like Biden just crushed um, Sanders in the places that you would have expected him to do well. Right. Right. And his, and among voters who dislike both candidates, Biden beats Trump, whereas Trump beat Hillary. I mean, that's what I'm getting at. But anyway, how do you see all of that? I mean, yeah, I think it is very possible. It's as simple as that. You know, so I, I, at the beginning, I say, tell me how the pandemic turns out. And I, I don't, you know, I, I do think that's the, the overwhelming variable here. But I do think there is a possibility here. I mean, we only know when we have the election um, that it's that simple, that the Democrats just need to nominate not Hillary Clinton and right. they can win the and they can win the election against Donald Trump. And I, I some of what Biden has pulled off here makes me move more towards that direction. What you mentioned, Michigan 2016. Sanders won the state narrowly. Michigan, 2020. Biden doesn't just win the state handily. Biden won every single county in Michigan. And if you look at the county by county map throughout the Midwest, where Sanders was, even state Sanders didn't quite win. Take like Illinois, he was close. Missouri, he was close in 16. These were like basically every county in these states. I think there was one county in Illinois um, that went for Sanders instead of Biden this year. So I, I do think there's a version of it um, that that is that. Although, I, and I and I would I would add this though, um, when you look at Hillary, I, I say any candidate who's not Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about what is it that 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 bothered people so much about Hillary and and, and created all of that. 
And I, I wonder, I, I know there's, there is the, she was uniquely demonized. There's people say it's gender and all of this. I wonder if a generation from now, let, let's move forward 50 years and say that by that point, there's been a female president or two. It's common for parties to nominate female presidential candidates. And we have more to sort of compare to. I, I think there's a big part of me that thinks we will end up looking back at Hillary Clinton and saying, this was the same problem that Al Gore had, the same problem that John Kerry had and Hillary Clinton. Too much of their public president presentation embodied a, a sort of elite version of liberalism sure. and culture that people responded negatively to. Because I think you can also see that Bush in 04 did not win Michigan, but he came close. He didn't win yeah. Wisconsin, but he came. Bush in 04 got a lot of the movement that Trump got in 16. He just couldn't quite get over the top in those states. So I think a lot of the negative pull against Kerry was there with Clinton. And I, I think there may be a lot more overlap there than we realize. Yeah, I mean, and... I mean, that's what's one of the things that makes the 88 election so fascinating is that that was the last election where you had the and maybe the only election, maybe going back at least to Wilkie or something, right, where you had the pristine versions of two different kinds of American elites, <laughs> right? You had this sort of wasp, old line, country club Republican elite, and then the technocratic Cambridge, Harvard, I'm smarter than the average bear, uh, progressive tech, you know, elite. And those, <coughs> and, and so it was, and so you can kind of see why come 92, a lot of the people who held their nose voting for the kind of guys that they were taught to hate, you know, which is like blue blood country club Republican. They're like, no, 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 not, we're not doing that again. I like this Perot guy. I like this Buchanan guy. I want someone, you know, more like me. Um, but it's funny just how, I mean, I read this New Yorker piece about the Greenwich, right. Connecticut thing, you know, and I, 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 I think the piece has gotten too much attention and it's, it's kind of impressionistic and like a lot of New Yorker pieces, it's about 12,000 words too long. <laughs> um, but it is amazing. It does really hammer home how that, that the elite that Dukakis represents has thrived since 88. But the elite that Prescott Bush represented, I mean, where the hell is it? I mean, I, I, it's just not, I mean, I, I'm sure there are enclaves of it. There are places where people are still putting mayonnaise on their French fries somewhere in America. But like, <laughs> it is not, does not have that kind of cultural place in our elite politics the way it once does. It seems to have completely been eradicated. Well, um, Good. No, I, I think you're, you're getting it. I think there's this, you're getting at this uh long-term realignment of our politics that was accelerated by 2016. And it, it, it's sort of like what we were just talking about a minute ago, it feels to me, where what powered Newt and the Republicans in the in the 90s and, and, and finally winning back the House was basically, a big part of it, I should say, was the South, which, you know, had been voting Republican for president, you know, for a long time, but it took right. to the 90s for it to trickle down the ballot. And I, I think there's a version of that that's playing out now on the other side, where you've got these very wealthy, uh, you know, suburban areas that traditionally on pocketbook issues, um, you know, voted a uh, Republican that are now on cultural grounds aligning pretty hard with the Democratic Party all the way down the ballot. Um, all right. So I, you can tell how little I want to do rank punditry that I keep veering away <laughs> from it. But we, I have certain due diligence obligations. Um, so just pure green eye shade, number crunching wonkery. Um, what do you think makes the most sense? I'll put it this way. There's that eternal debate between whether 
a vice presidential pick should reinforce your brand, right? The most famous example of that was Clinton picking Gore in 92, doubling down young, new generation Southern, or it should bring you a state or it should compensate for um, a candidate's weaknesses. Like, so W takes Cheney and I think 2000, which is sort of like, was reassuring to a lot of people. Um, What do you think is the most important thing for Biden I think doubling down on his personal brand is probably a mistake, but that's me. <laughs> um, what, uh, what do you think? Do you think he should look to carry a state? If he, if so, what state could he, ca- could a pick carry? Um, how do you think he should look at it? And what would you recommend if you were allowed to recommend? Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely skeptical on the, you know, pick a VP and you'll get the state um, version of this. I remember, you know, Kerry in 04, I mean, this, this sounds ridiculous in hindsight, Kerry in 04, was talked into John Edwards in part because John Edwards was going to put North Carolina in play. Um, right. Not even remotely close. I can remember um, we were talking about Dukakis, 1988. Um, again, the South in 88 was not necessarily off limits for Democrats, especially Texas. Here's a very popular Democrat from Texas, Lloyd Benson. Let's put him on the ticket. Let's rekindle that old Kennedy Johnson, Austin, Boston connection. And then by the way, Lloyd Benson gets off the greatest vice presidential debate line in history when he says, you know, you're no Jack Kennedy to Dan Quayle. Um, What does it add up to? It adds up to 39 percent for the Dukakis Benson ticket in in Texas. (laughs) Benson is able to run for and keep his Senate seat, too. So I I think, um, look, more recently, what did Paul Ryan do in Wisconsin for Mitt Romney? Uh, You know, four years later, Trump's able to carry the state. You put somebody from Wisconsin on the ticket in 2012, you still lose it by six. I I, I don't think it it, it gives you that kind of... um, Pull. I don't think even as Benson showed when they perform extremely well, it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to help. So I, I tend to think from Biden's standpoint that it's that it's that old, uh, you know, first do no harm um, yeah. really ought to be the standard here, because that seems to be the. it also seems to be in line with when you say reinforce the strength, I think in a way that does reinforce his strength. This is a guy who's barely visible in public right now, who's not doing much campaigning and it seems to be working. It, it seems to be, you look at all the polls right now, this is about a six to seven point lead for Joe Biden. It's pretty steady. Again, in this moment, we'll, we'll see what happens a few months from now. But right now, um, it seems to me that Joe Biden has a, a pretty broad and deep, the American people have a, a pretty broad and deep familiarity with Joe Biden. They seem to be comparing him against Trump and on the whole saying, if Biden, fine, good enough, let's go with that. That may be enough for him to win the election. And in that sense, I wouldn't necessarily overthink this VP thing. And I would maybe look to somebody who's going to be just as inoffensive and innocuous to, to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he has to be, he has to pick a woman, right? That's, he said, he said he's going to, and, um, he will get, I mean, I I don't mean he has to pick a woman because the laws of the universe or decency required it. He said he will. Right. And if he doesn't, he'll get eaten alive for (laughs) it. Right. Um, do you think, do you think Whitmer has taken herself herself out of the running? I mean, this whole, I got to say, all the networks, to a certain extent, have covered these protests poorly, I would argue. They're sort of catnip. You know, cameras want to go where there's conflict. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so Fox covers it way too. And I say this, you know, disclosures all around. You're an MSNBC guy. I'm a Fox News contributor. But, um, uh Fox covers it way too much like these are uh, Tea Party 2.0, heroic heroes against an oppressive system kind of thing. And uh, I would say MSNBC and CNN cover them too much 
um, as look at these kooks, right? And personally, I think like in the Michigan thing with the guys with the guns, look at these kooks is closer to the reality than look at these heroes for freedom. But that's a different conversation. Um, but it does seem like Whitmer was this obvious choice. This is the governor of Michigan. Uh, before all of the stories of her banning people buying gardening supplies. And she seems to have taken a hit. Um, do you think she's still in the running? Do you? Th I don't know much about how popular she is in the state. Do you think she could actually carry, help carry? I mean, you're, I know you're a skeptic in general. Right. But some governors have better control over their state party machinery than other governors do. Uh, is, does that part of it not matter at all? What do you think? Yeah, so I, the polling on, on Whitmer has been um, overall still popular, you know, in Michigan. Um, does not have, it's not as astronomical when you look at like a Cuomo in New York and the poll numbers he's getting, but you're looking at, at overall a very popular governor still. So I think she's taken a hit. It reminds me a bit, I, I think there's a similarity between, in terms of popularity in their state, I think there's a similarity between Whitmer in Michigan as a Democrat and DeSantis in Florida as a Republican, because DeSantis has also taken a hit managing this differently in Florida, but he's still 55 to 60% approval rating. And you're looking at, at, at high numbers like that for, for Whitmer too. So I don't think anything about that necessarily takes her out of the, out of the contention from Biden's standpoint. I don't, I, I would imagine she's still very much in it. Um, sure. And if she's popular and, and Michigan is as close as it was in, in 2016, could make a, an argument there that I couldn't disprove that she would help. Um, I could, say, too, that just looking at Biden's primary performance in Michigan versus Sanders suggests that Biden on his own, no matter who the running mate is, might be able to make up, you know, 10, 20,000 votes and, and, and carry the state. Polling is suggesting that so far. Um, but if you're looking at Whitmer, I think one thing you're looking at is regionally the Midwest. You're looking at the uh, Obama Trump voters. You're looking at bringing them home. You're looking at reassuring them. Um, and to the extent the protests and the criticism that Whitmer has, has gotten unnerve you at all or bother you or give you pause. How about Klobuchar? Um, yeah. Because I think Klobuchar, and that's, that's where my mind has been going. I don't have um, any, you know, insider knowledge on this, but I'm just looking at the options here. And, and to me, there's a, there's a lot of logic to Klobuchar. Um, she's been out there. She's been tested. She's been vetted as they say, um, you know, Minnesota was a blue state in 16. It was a point and a half. I mean, it was, yeah. it was close to going. Um, you know, so I think there's a case for, for Klobuchar. I also, I think Klobuchar sort of proved in the, uh, in, in the primary she didn't win. she didn't seem to offend great numbers of, of, of voters either. Yeah, getting seem back to, really... to vanilla. She's like the least objectionable Democrat I know. Right. And yeah. I, my view of it is my theory of it is that might be the best course for Biden. So I would, that's where I, I would look you, know, you, you, you So talk about, um, I, one of the other things you hear about this, you know, is, uh, and Clyburn is saying this, he needs to put not just a woman on the ticket, he needs to put an African-American woman on the ticket, because look at African-American turnout in 2016 versus 2012. I, I, I get the logic of it, but I look at the primary results and I, I say, you know, Joe Biden's the nominee because of black support. You know, right, Kamala right, Harris, right. Cory Booker didn't stay in the race because they weren't getting black support in South Carolina. If they, if they had been compo polling competitively in South Carolina, they could have made a case Hey, it's not working in Iowa. It's not working in New Hampshire. Let's wait till South Carolina. But the one who got to make that case was Biden. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just not sure about that argument. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too pejorative about it. I do not under, I, I honestly don't understand the, it, there's a very much a woke inside the beltway uh, subset 
that just thinks it's obvious it should be Stacey Abrams. And I just, I mean, I, 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 I literally can't see it. I can see why she's an attractive political type. And, and our friend A.B. Stoddard, you know, makes this point that uh, in, in a system where we had stronger political parties, they would have said to Stacey Abrams, look, we're going to groom you over the next three, two or three or four cycles to be the first black woman president or something like that. Um, but instead, she's just sort of freelancing this stuff on her own. I, I don't know, you know, she didn't have Georgia stolen from her. And, and I, it doesn't either, either Biden can carry Georgia or she can't or he can't. Um, and it doesn't seem to me that Stacey Abrams and if the policy is first do no harm, I don't I just don't get the case for Stacey Abrams. But is there something I'm missing on all that? No, I, I tend to agree. I, I think the fact that in the way I generally look at these, you know, vice presidential, uh, the veep stakes is the, the more actively somebody is publicly campaigning for it, the less likely it is they're going to be picked. I just haven't seen that work before. And, and she's been, I think, surprisingly, from my standpoint, active in pursuing this. And I, I, I think that might indicate something about her, um, her chances of getting it. I, and I, yeah, I, I tend to look at it, too. The, what fascinates me about Abrams, and I, I suspect she won't get it, a lot of the reasons you're saying, what fascinates me about Abrams is um, she does, on paper, I think, have a future in Georgia politics. She came close mm. to winning the governorship. The state has some, you know, the demographic trends in the state suggest that's going to be a fertile area for Democrats over the next decade. Um, so she could have a future there. But I, I think she's also representative of something I've been thinking about. It's changing our politics, how, how the nationalization of politics the nationalization of political media, the personalization of that media has made it possible for candidates, for, for people who don't have the, the, the biography that was required in the past, the credentials that were required in the past to be elevated to the national stage. So in the same way that the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, population 102,000 could basically win the Iowa caucuses and become a major candidate for president, a, a state legislator from Georgia who did not win a statewide, came close, but did not win a statewide race um, I, I think there's, um, I think that there's a, there's been a change in our politics that has made that kind of story more possible, um, where they can get attention in the national media and they can become characters in our national politics. Um, but I, I, I think there might be an extra step there in terms of actually putting them on tickets. Yeah. So, uh, I want to, I want to return to this, but when you're talking about, uh, using media to become a national figure, you can also use media to become an international figure. And one of the key uh, drivers of that technologically is, is ExpressVPN. So we all know that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But here's something you might not know. You can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Now, I should say we got some comments about this this ad the other day asking whether this is against the law and how shocked and dismayed they were that I was advocating law breaking and theft and whatnot. And while I can't say that we have done a voluminous research on this, we are confident that it is, it is not against the law, merely frowned upon in some quarters. Um, but uh, I just thought I would mention that to people who are worried that somehow, you know, the mattress tag police have a new uh, portfolio and will be coming after you. They will not be. So a lot of us are stuck at home. 
And it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch. So you can use ExpressVPN to binge shows that aren't currently available in, um, on Netflix in America, but might be available in uh, the UK. For example, Star Trek Discovery is on Netflix UK. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is on Netflix Canada. Uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is on Netflix Australia. Um, How I Met Your Mother is on Netflix Germany. And my understanding is that much like Shakespeare, How I Met Your Mother in German is among the most euphonious and, and blissful um, entertainment experiences you can have. Anyway, it's so simple to do. You just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK or Germany, refresh, refresh Netflix, and boom, that's it. You see, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Do you love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason to use ExpressVPN is that it's ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD, no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all of your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on a personal device or on the big screen, wherever you are. If you visit my special link right now at expressvpn.com slash remnant, that's not dingo. I know there's a, pardon the expression, Pavlovian tendency to type in dingo for our promo codes, but occasionally they want remnant. You can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show. Watch what you want and protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash remnant. That is expressvpn.com slash remnant. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's edition of The Remnant. So I, actually, I do want to get to this, this nationalization of our politics thing because I think it's fascinating. Um, but um, one last sort of data-driven point. Um, this is this thing that I've been fascinated by for a while now. Um, you look at the black support for Biden, right? You know, this is, you look at the stuff that Harry Enton has been doing about the sort of the invisible democratic, you know, voters and mm-hmm. electorate. And um, you look at the Ralph Northam stuff in Virginia for almost all of my adult life, with some, you know, hyperbole and, and, and generalization, overgeneralization, when you talked about the left and the Democratic Party, you were basically talking about the black left, you know, Jesse Jackson, um, to a certain extent, Al Sharpton. Um, and the thing that has sort of happened when nobody was looking is that the, it seems that now the median African-American voter is much more pragmatic and centrist than your sort of white, woke left-winger. And I I don't mean any of these things as pejorative. I'm trying to be just descriptive of it. Um, If you looked at that primary with AOC where she was, uh, where she beat Crowley, my understanding is that she didn't really do all that well with minority voters. I mean, she sort of draw, you know, uh, you know, 
tied or something like that, maybe even lost in a couple of little precincts. Um, but where she just excelled was among the sort of what I I will say mildly pejoratively, right? So the barista socialist types, you know, the uh the 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 woke white left, the Bernie bro types and all of that kind of thing. And um it's sort of it's just sort of fascinating to me, you know, that the average white voter, uh, the average white college educated voter in Virginia was much angrier about the blackface thing and much more wanted Northam to resign than your average black voter. And um, what, what, how settled is the data on all of that? I mean, is it, is it really, I mean, am I speaking too general, too glibly about it? Um, have, has, how much is the black, electorate in the Democratic Party moved rightward or how much has the Democratic Party moved leftward and they've just stayed where they always were? You know, give me a picture of it. Yeah. So I, I think it's actually I, I think this has been true for a while now, but is getting new attention. I think it's been getting new attention in part because you've seen within the Democratic coalition, particularly among white self-described liberals, a very rapid move to the left on cultural issues, on racial justice issues. It's been called the Great Awakening. This is happening. It's driving the media conversation. It's You certainly saw in the primaries here in, in, in 2020, it's driving the way candidates talk about, candidates are saying things that would have been unimaginable from a candidate even you know five years ago. And I think it's bringing this into contrast when, when that is the discussion that's taking place in the media and that is what candidates are saying and black voters are responding as they did in this election and backing Biden and not any of the you know, candidates who really went to the kind of woke left. Um, I think it's, it's, it's becoming much more visible and people are seeing this dynamic, but I think it's been there a lot longer and it's just been unappreciated. And I say this because um, I think of the story, you mentioned Jesse Jackson and in and, and the Jesse Jackson, Bill Clinton story, I think revealed this back in, in 92, where Jackson had run for president in 84 and run for president in 88. In 88, he got, the estimate is he got 96% of the black vote when he ran for the Democratic nomination in 1988. It was basically unanimous. And, and Michael Dukakis got 2% of it. And it created this situation where when Dukakis got the nomination, Dukakis and his people were terrified that because he hadn't won black votes in the primary, he was not going to be able to get black turnout in the fall. And Jesse Jackson knew that the Dukakis campaign was terrified of this. And so he exercised great leverage over Dukakis at the convention, tormented him, you know, over the vice presidential. And, and it created a situation where, where Dukakis spent a month of that campaign trying to cater to Jesse Jackson. And when it happened, so in, fast forward to 1992, Bill Clinton ran. Bill Clinton became the Democratic nominee. Jesse Jackson decided not to run in 92. And Bill Clinton ended up getting... 80% of the black vote in the primary in 92. It's a, Paul Songus won New Hampshire, looked like right. he had a shot at the nomination, couldn't win black votes. And, and Bill Clinton did. So you, you fast forward to the you know run up to the Democratic convention in 92. And Jesse Jackson thinks this is Dukakis all over again. This white guy, this white candidate thinks he's going to need me to get the black vote. And Clinton had a confidence that Dukakis didn't have. And that is the backdrop. This is, I mean, this is debated for all sorts of other reasons. That's the backdrop for the sister soldier speech in 1992. Mm -hmm. What that was tactically and strategically was Bill Clinton delivering a message to Jesse Jackson that I'm not Michael Dukakis. You're not going to have the leverage over me. And I am confident that I have an ability to win black votes, to make inroads of black voters and to appeal to and, and connect with black voters on my own. 
And that is, if you go back and look at the aftermath of the sister soldier speech, that was the sort of surprise that took hold in the media back then. It was Clinton goes to war with Jackson. Oh no, Clinton can't possibly win the black vote now. And then you started seeing polls in the next week or two. Oh, wow. They're still with they're still with Bill Clinton. And then the other thing you saw then was all of these black leaders who actually had a lot of issues with Jesse Jackson used that occasion to endorse Bill Clinton and, and get behind him. So I, I think you saw it even in 92 with Bill Clinton's ability as, as the centrist, moderate DLC Democrat to win the black vote, to stand up to Jesse Jackson, to still get overwhelming black support and, and, and black turnout in 92. I think we saw it then. But I think because of that great awakening that's playing out now, we're talking about it more now. Yeah, so, right, but but when I hear, I mean, it, it, it's wrong to seize on the significance of market failures like, say, Beto O'Rourke, right? But when I hear Beto O'Rourke, Bill de Blasio, uh, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, um, there are an enormous number of people in the Democratic primaries this time around who were speaking as sort of we're speaking all the shibboleths and codes of the white woke left. And I guess the question I have is, is there any evidence that black voters, that's what they crave to hear from white politicians? I mean, Biden didn't do a lot of that. I mean, Biden did, does some of that too. Um, and he can, he can get sort of demagogic, you know, they're going to put you back in chains and all that kind of stuff. But that's more like old style rabble rousing than the sort of new, woke lingo kind of stuff. You know, what I wrote about this recently, what just comes to mind is, you know, they had that poll last year asking Latinos what they prefer to be yeah. call, called, right? And it was like 30, 40, 50% say Latino. I think the majority position was they wanted to be called their own ethnicity, like Mexican American or Cuban American and that kind of thing. And Hispanic was way up there. And Latinx you know, a Latin X, so it's you know, degendered, got less than 2%. And yet you listen to people, politicians like Elizabeth Warren, they use that language. The question I have is, is that, in, is it intended for white voters? Is it intended for minority voters? Um, or is it that some of these people actually think that's what your average black mechanic or Hispanic contractor wants to hear. I mean, it just seems like there's this Dukakis-like disconnect between the way elite Democrats talk and who the actual rank-and-file Democratic voters are. Do you, does that make sense to you? I mean, full yeah. disclosure, I used to work for Ben Wattenberg, who was one of the DLC, you know, sure. precursor guys. And, and he, I've heard all of the lectures about how the Democrats need to get back to the center and attract you know, working class people and not elites and all the rest. So I, I, I'm, I've always fascinated in this subject. So anyway. Yeah, no, that's, that's, I mean, you know, but that's, you know, Ben Wattenberg was operating in, in an environment where that was ascendant. There was a, that new left was ascendant and he was responding to that. Um, I think there's, there's a lot to it. And it's funny, you mentioned the, um, the Latinx survey. I've been, these have been registering with me for the last few years because I started seeing this about five or six years ago. The first one of these that I saw if you remember the controversy in, I'd say 2014, this reached a peak over the Washington Redskins nickname. And mm -hmm. this, this got a, a ton of media attention. And there was a, a, a it was inevitable that they were going to have to change that name. And the Washington Post commissioned a poll of Native Americans, a, a mass poll yeah. of Native Americans. 90% <laughs> said they were fine with the nickname. 
And it, yeah. I, I remember seeing there, the shock when that poll came back. And I did that really did, it seemed to me, change the media discourse on, on it, it really kind of, they took the volume down on, on the, the pressure, yeah. you know, to change that nickname. But that was, that was one that registered to me. The Latinx registered with me. Um, what I think is happening is um, this gets to who is driving the media conversation and how the media conversation then impacts what, what, um, what politicians are saying. Um, I think social media has a big piece to do with this. If you're on sort of whatever you want to call this politics, media, Twitter, where, where the candidates live, where the media folks live, um, woke messaging does extremely well on there. And you'll get the impression that there's a, that there's a, a mass thing there. So I think that, that impacts it. And I think there's a thing where candidates, Democratic candidates, white Democratic candidates in particular, um, but by no means all white Democratic candidates, uh, but not just white Democratic candidates, um, when they decide they want to reach out to X group, they, who would they talk to? Activists who purport to represent X group. Right. And I think I really saw this with the Warren campaign because the Warren campaign made, made more of an effort than anybody I could see to try to, to try to win the Democratic electorate through activists. Engagement mm-hmm. with activists, adopting activist language, going to every activist event. And whenever, I, I noticed this just whenever I would talk to leaders of activist groups on the, on the left, um, we'd always come back, Warren, 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 Warren. They were all extremely impressed with Elizabeth Warren. And you saw her, I, I saw her adopt the language of that. And every single time I looked at Elizabeth Warren's poll numbers, um, failure to launch with black voters, um, strong support from white, white liberals, white higher income, white college educated, higher uh, income, self-described liberals. That, that was the, that was the base of it. And you could just see that was where it was resonating. It resonated with some black voters, but not a lot. Um, the one thing I, I look at in the polling though, that, that I, I wonder about for the future is one of the reasons this doesn't register with black voters, I think is age, black voters, more than white voters, more than Hispanic voters, certainly tend to be older, dominated by older voters dominated by more culturally moderate older voters. And that's the, when you got to like African-American voters, 65 plus, that's where you got to Biden at like 85% yeah, um, yeah, yeah. in the primary. Younger African-American voters, that's where Sanders got support. That's where Warren started to get a little bit more support. And I do wonder if there if there's going to be an evolution that takes place there where the younger black electorate, as it matures, as it grows into a, a, um, um, a larger share of the electorate, moves towards that activist position. But so far, you're not seeing it in any mass level. Yeah. Um, I completely forgot about the Redskins poll. That's a good data point. Um, all right. So let's talk at least a little briefly about this this thing that we've talked about offline um, before. Um, you know, this these are which some of my listeners are getting bored with me focusing on. It's definitely on the Remnant podcast bingo card is that the level of partisanship out there is counterintuitively, but inversely proportional to the weakness of the parties. Mm -hmm. People have internalized their partisan affiliations in, I mean, this is a very crude, crude analogy. I mean, no offense to anybody theologically, but I'm constantly trying to come up with a new way of expressing this point. The, before the Reformation, Protestant Reformation, the priest handled all of the weighty questions about the the future of your soul. The priests and the pope and the archbishops and all that. The institution handled it, and they told you where you could bend the rules and where you couldn't, and all of these kinds of things. <coughs> Excuse me. And they had a long term 
investment in the brand, to be crude, of the Catholic Church. The Protestant Reformation is very much sort of analogous to what we've seen in the last 40, 50 years, where no longer do you outsource your, your beliefs and passions to an institution that carries the water for you. You internalize it, and it becomes your personal relationship with this idea, um, and you become much more intensely passionate, almost charismatically so, right? And so one of the things we see in American life today is uh, partisan affiliation mapping very much like a religion with people. It's more predictive of attitudes and behaviors than a lot of things that political scientists used to look like, like race and ethnicity and, and income and all that kind of stuff. And so that's one part of it. This is my thesis. And then the other part of it is, is that a lot of institutions, including some of the ones that we have affiliations with or have worked for in the past, are sometimes doing party work by proxy, some of which is totally fine, you know, but some of it, and some of it is needed in a democracy and is part of the journalistic portfolio. But at the same time, some of it really is basically water carrying for parties. And you have media outlets that are doing the issue formation, the, the policy formation, the opposition research, um, as if they were commissioned by a party, but they think they're doing it for their own internal reasons. And I think this is one of the reasons why the media climate is really, you know, that red versus blue thing is now, it's, you know, it's, Catholic versus Protestant in a lot of ways in American life. Um, how do you see it from where you sit? Because you sit at a different perch than I do. I'm a AEI, formerly National Review, currently the Dispatch Fox guy. You're an MSNBC guy with a different background. Where? How do you? How do you see it? And you may caveat all you wish about <laughs> you know whatever conflicts of interest you have. Uh, yeah, no, stipulate. I I, I have. Um, uh, you know, I'm in it, so you know. Um, <laughs> Take that for what you will. But that's one of the reasons why I want to talk to you is you don't do that stuff very much. I mean, I don't, when I listen to you, and look, there are people who do that stuff that I still think are good journalists and honest mm -hmm. people and all that. I mean, I, don't get me wrong, but um, but when I listen to you, I have to tilt my head to see, okay, where, you know, you know, because I'm trained by profession to look for bias about these kinds of things. Yeah. And it's hard to find it with you. So it's one of the reasons why you're an interesting guy to talk to about this stuff. No, I, I appreciate it. Uh, Part of that with me just is um, there, there's a lot. And if you were to ask me what my politics are, there's a lot I'm kind of undecided on. So I'm, I'm also sure. often a curious listener to these conversations. I, I've also found myself in the last few years um, <clears throat> becoming more and more. Um, it, it, it's funny. I think just as the old, this old journalism model of, of down the middle, you know, balance and all of this, I, I, I think it's, um, it's fading a bit. I, I'm becoming more attached to it and I, I still, mm -hmm. I believe in it still. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to find kind of a way forward with that. Um, in terms of, you know, where we are and how I see it. Yeah. I, I see this all as a consequence. I see this as a consequence of, of a couple of things. Um, I think where we start, I think the thing to start with is, is the nationalization of politics. I think that's the first thing. And if you mentioned Tip O'Neill earlier, the democratic speaker of the house, North Cambridge, Mass., his famous line about politics was all politics is local. And that was right. true in American life for a long time. And it's why when you looked at a political party nationally, any mid 20th century, even through the 60s, 70s, even into the 1980s, when you looked at a political party nationally, 
they often didn't make sense. For the Democratic Party in the middle of the 20th century, that meant that labor Democrats and African-American Democrats from you know, New York and Illinois were in the same party as Southern segregationists. They were all in the Democratic Party because all politics was local and there were local reasons why Democrats like this did well in the North and Democrats like this did well in the South. And the same thing well, exists in the Republican Party. All politics is local, but also po- is another way which I think people leave out, all politics was coalitional, right? So it was less ideational. It was more like we're, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It was a transactional relationship between these conflicting weird groups, which due to polarization is not a thing anymore. Anyway, I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, I, I, think you're, I think you're right. And the other thing is that contributed to, even though Democrats you know, ran the House for 40 years and it was a one-party thing, there was a lot more cross-party pollination that just happened because the conservative Democrats um, you know, could find common cause. It, it was a Democratic Congress when Ronald Reagan first became president in 1981, but there was a conservative coalition that Reagan could rely on to get his tax cuts through between Republicans right. and conservative Democrats. So there was just so much more cross-party stuff going on. And I think what's happened is the media has evolved in a way that has encouraged, fed, and, and resulted in the total nationalization of our politics. Um, we, we mentioned talk radio, C-SPAN being kind of the origins of this cable news, internet, social media, Twitter, Facebook, all of these things. They encourage people to look at politics from the national perspective and to work backward from there and to decide when they look at the Democratic Party nationally, if they like it, to decide when they look at the Republican Party nationally, if they like it and to vote accordingly. And, and what it's resulted in is if you look back 40 years ago, totally common for people to split their ticket, to vote for one party for president, another party for the House, Senate, whatever. Extremely uncommon now that single ticket voting has just been increasing exponentially for the past you know, four decades or so. And it's at a point right now where the people who split their tickets are kind of looked like it. That's weird. Why would you do that? Um, yeah. You know, and it's the number of swing states in presidential elections has been diminishing. I, I, I think I, I said this when I was when I wrote the book and, and people would ask me the question because tribalism was in the title and people would ask you know, what's the way out of it? And, and I don't have an answer, but the, the answer that I would end up giving was that basically, I think we are hardwired as human beings to think and to be tribal. I think it's, it's just, it's in our DNA. It's, it is how we think. And I think the evolution of political media in the last, I'm going to say 40 years has been maximally conducive to that tribal instinct that we all have. And I think it's almost an accident of history, I think, that we existed in a world where um, that I was just describing, where these cross-party coalitions were possible, where the Democratic and Republican Party both had kind of funky identities to the extent they had identities at all. Um, I, it was almost an accident of history. I, I think we're kind of hardwired for this. I think our technology and our media has caught up with it. And it, and it leaves me in a place, I always hated ending these, these book talks this way, but it, it leaves me in a place where I, I don't know what the way out is. And I don't know when I, when I say I still believe in the, the old, you know, model of, of, of down the middle, I really do. Um, and I don't, I, I struggle sometimes to see what the way forward is for that. Um, people have heard me rant about tribalism way too many times, so I'm not going to take the bait, but, um, are there any, I mean, I can ask you what you think about the reforms I'm, I'm in favor of, but are there any, you know, forget about solving things. You know, one of the things I always emphasize as a conservative is that, there really are very few silver bullets for any problem. You know, it, problems are complicated and they require complicated solutions. Um, uh, ironically, 
one way you stay out of complicated problems is having simple rules to follow for a complex society so everyone knows what they are and all the rest, but that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, what, what are just some things that you think would make things better? Are you for ranked choice voting? Are you for, um, uh, I don't know, getting rid of gerrymandering? Are you, um, um, would you get C-SPAN out of Congress? I mean, are there little things that you would do that you think would just move the, 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 the ship a couple degrees maybe in the right direction for a turnaround? So I, I've, I've thought about the, the gerrymandering one and, and where I land on that is um, I don't think that, the, first of all, I think the reform ideas with gerrymandering come with all sorts of problems because one person's definition of fair is another person's definition of a gerrymander. Um, and I, I just, I have not seen any kind of a, a standard on that, that, that I think could be adopted and, 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 and widely accepted. Um, I also think that, that the, the situation with gerrymandering often gets confused with just population distribution and the, the political affiliation patterns that have emerged with that. Um, you know, there are statistics, we, we talk about these old elections and I mean, it's, it's funny when you go back and look at Michael Dukakis just destroyed in the 1988 election. He carries only 10 states and 112 electoral votes. He won more counties in this country than Barack Obama did in victory. Um, that is how much <laughs> the Democratic coalition shrunk in geographically over the course of a generation with the, all yeah. these patterns that we're talking about right here. And I think when, you know, when that happens, I mean, that's, that's why Trump loves that you know, red county map of the country. I mean, it's the Republicans have always done well in, in sort of rural areas, but it's never been this dramatic where Trump can, you know, he can make the country yeah, look yeah. all red um, just because of that. So I, I, I think when you try to, when you start trying to draw congressional districts, you start running into that um, population distribution issue. And I think that complicates it too. I was fascinated about a decade ago when California, um, you know, decided to do the jungle primaries. And, and the idea here was that, um, you might get, you know, uh, might have a Democrat running against the Democrat and, and there'd be an incentive for one of the Democrats to make common cause with the Republicans. It might, it might blur the party lines. I just I'm looking at California about a decade later and I'm not seeing um, I'm seeing the same system in California. It, this Functionally, it seems the same as it did a decade ago. I think each party and I agree with you, the party organizations aren't that strong, but the, the people who speak for the party and, and sort of organize the voters in the party have figured out the California system and they have figured out how to tribalize, polarize the California electorate along the lines that we already knew. So I'm not I'm not too optimistic on that. The C-SPAN one, I mean, yeah, the Supreme Court doesn't um, uh, has managed to keep the the, the cameras out um, and people respect it more. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, I, I just think there is it, it's hard for me to get around. Supreme Court justices are appointed, confirmed by the Senate versus the House that's the people's house. It's elected yeah. by the people. And I, I, I think there's a strong and compelling argument for people being allowed to watch it. But I agree with you. I mean, it's 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 it has um, it incentivize it incentive. A great. My favorite example is for the last decade is Anthony Weiner. <laughs> I think Anthony Weiner was the yeah. Democratic newt in some ways. He didn't he didn't organize the party, but he understood exactly what Newt understood about the, the power of that camera, how to play to it and how that could make you a national figure. And he very briefly, some other things he had issues with, but that's one thing he understood. <laughs> so, um, I, I know because now I'm just breaking your food bowl, but, uh, what about getting rid of primaries? And, and when you say getting rid of primaries, what do you envision? Just a, a 
a jungle election kind of? Uh, well, yeah, I think, yeah. uh, no, no election. Go, I mean, maybe have conventions um, where you can vote on the floor and all that kind of stuff, but it'd be for party activists. Yeah. So this gets to the okay. heart of this, this, so this gets to the heart of this thing that I've been trying to talk about for so long on this podcast, which is that, and John Ward is one of the guys who's really brought me along on this. And so is Yuval and, um, and Elaine K. Mark has done some great stuff at Brookings, but we are the first country in the Western advanced democratic world, right? In the modern sort of economically advanced world where our parties have voluntarily given up the ability to pick their own candidates. And uh, England has gone a little bit our way in the last few right. years. The Labor Party idiotically basically, you know, emptied all the Star Wars cantinas of British politics and said, if you pay two pounds, you can vote for the Labor nominee. And that's how they got Corbyn. And one of the ways they got Boris is they sort of did a similar thing. Just the fee was a lot better, a lot higher, which I am in favor of. But, um, you know, you look at in 1968, um, uh, was it Hubert Humphreys, the nominee, mm -hmm. right? He got, I, I think he came in sixth in terms of primary votes yeah. in, in 1968. Um, by 1972, that whole thing is over. And basically what you've done is you've created a professional class of activists um, and, and voters who um, have taken, who have basically become the tails wagging the dog of the party. And it took a long time for that process to play itself out um, and to get us where we are now. But um, I don't have any problem philosophically. I mean, there's the political hurdle of fixing, of doing, doing this is very high. I grant you. Um, but one of my core sort of new convictions of the last five years of thinking about this stuff from working on my book and all these other things I've been working on is that in a democracy, you need lots of undemocratic institutions that take responsibility for their own long-term integrity that aren't just basically saying the customer is always right, right? And so Elaine K. Mark makes this point about how, say in 68, you were the governor of Pennsylvania and you were, uh, you controlled your state's delegates, or let's say we had that system today, right? And, and this sort of gets at my point about how you can't televise uh, negotiations. So say you had the old system today and some guy comes to you in late 2015 and he says, I'm going to run for president. I want your delegates. He says, and then you say, okay, so what's your agenda? And he says, well, first of all, we're going to ban all Muslims from entering the country. Um, and remember at first that was included American Muslims, which, you know, is problematic. Um, and we're going to build a giant wall on the Mexican border and we're going to have Mexico pay for it. Uh, depending on the day of the week in 2015, you might have proposed he might have proposed socialized medicine or or just getting rid of Obamacare. Go through a whole list of things. The governor of Pennsylvania was like, "Get the hell out of my office!" Right? Or let's say someone comes to you and says, "Okay, here's what we're going to do," and it's a Bernie Sanders type, and you know, and he's never been a Democrat really, and he says, "We're going to." Um, socialized medicine, I know, seize the means of production, whatever the hell it is that Bernie Sanders wants to do. You say, get the hell out of my office. But in a system where the delegate, the voters in the primaries control the process entirely, it becomes sort of like 
Mark Antony with Caesar's Toga, where you can whip up the crowd and you apply external pressure. And one of the things we learned from 2016, particularly in the Republican Party, is almost nobody was willing to stand up to the external pressure of a Fox News addicted or Rush Limbaugh addicted primary vote. And so you end up having this phenomenon where it's like that French intellectual, I can never remember his name, said, uh, the people have chosen, I am their leader, I must go with them. And so you you basically geld institutions of any of their own par- power to think about their long-term interests, to think about the country's long-term interests, and instead they become, as I think Ross Perot, I mean, not Ross Perot, uh, Ross Douthat put it recently, they become fueled jets sitting on a tarmac waiting to be hijacked. And in 2016, we saw Bernie almost do it with the Democratic Party. We saw Trump do it with the Republican Party. And in a healthier democracy, the Republican Party would just say, hey, look, this is you don't represent what we represent. You're out of here. But the gatekeepers are gone. And the same thing, analogous thing has happened on the on the on the sort of intellectual journalism side. National Review still does glorious and important stuff. But they're gatekeepers in a world where the walls around the gate have all come down and um, and it's sort of a free-for-all. And so my view is that you need strong institutions that are willing to take one for the team, that are willing to tell people, you know, the Marines doesn't put things up for a vote. Coca-Cola doesn't put things up for a vote. Um, they do market research, sure, but they don't ask their employees, okay, who's in favor of a raise? Um, and this is, I don't want to live in an undemocratic society, but a healthy democratic society is like an ecosystem that has all sorts of things like healthy trees and, you know, healthy ponds. And the institutions in a healthy society need to be healthy by being, to a certain degree, undemocratic. And the democratization of our parties, I think, is one of the things that's ruining our politics. Anyway, my rant is over. I apologize for filibustering. No, I... I it's interesting, and I, I agree with you, I think, at a philosophical level. Uh-huh. I think I agree with you. My The practical problem, considerations are serious. I agree. Well, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's the thing I'm, I'm thinking. It's, it's just, I think, you, you mentioned 68. In, in mm-hmm. 68 and 72, think about what triggered these changes in the Democratic primary and, and, and the Republican Party in terms of going to primary. First of all, remember, in 72, you know, caucuses, were a major, you know, so these, these right. the Iowa caucuses really were launched in 72 is the first time they were having, you know, a lot of people going out and voting in them. That level of democratization was radical in 72. But I, I think it's television. I think it's mm-hmm. the rise of television. It's the televised convention in 68. It's Mayor Daley in 68 being caught on camera. It's the scenes from the streets outside the convention in 68. Um, I think that is what triggered the reform. And, and then the evolution of television, you know, from 68 on, you go from black and white television to color television. You're going from color television to cable news. You're going from cable news to the internet, from the internet to social media. So I, that I think has just created, you mentioned like, you know, Republican leaders didn't want to stand up to a Rush Limbaugh or to a talk radio or to a Fox News. I just don't see a world where those forces don't exist and they're not still riling up the masses against whatever it happens to be. And, 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 you know, when you get to, if you could create a Democratic convention or a Republican convention that um, was going to nominate the candidate just in the convention, no primary, no caucus, the people making that decision are still going to have to answer to Republican and Democratic voters. Is the governor of Pennsylvania, or, you know, the governor of Pennsylvania 
would have to run in the Republican primary. And we've seen, um, I think that's been a major, um, a major source of party discipline has been the threat of a primary challenge. Um, you know, the fear of being the next Republican who loses the House primary, the Senate primary, the gubernatorial primary. So even if they're technically free at the convention, I still imagine that's a powerful incentive. The, the one thing I'd say is- Yeah, no, yeah. but uh, just to one point on that, I agree that's going to be inevitable no matter what. The thing is, is the party going to have, I mean, look at the most effective, at least Republican politician in America, maybe the most effective politician in America, whether you like him or not, is Mitch McConnell. Because he actually uses the job the way the job was envisioned. And he uses those, I mean, you know this stuff vastly better than I do, but he uses those Senate campaign committees the way parties used to use things. You know, we support incumbents. We don't care if they're a rhino, squish, whatever. If you're a sitting senator, we work with you. Um, they, uh, you know, McConnell, you, he's an institutionalist. He's like one of the only major figures in American life who just has zero interest of being president of the United States. He, he has the job that he wanted and he likes protecting the institution. Um, now, admittedly, he's made decisions that you, reasonable people can disagree with about whether they're in the long-term health of the institution, but at least as he sees it, he's an institutionalist. And um, if you actually have the, the, I think that one of the, that point I was making earlier about how the parties are weaker, but polarization or partisanship is stronger gets at the point when these institutions become incredibly weak, they don't know how to filter out the wahoos and the, 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 the crazy guys. And, um, and if, and so one of the weirdest things I've having spent the last 20 years speaking to conservative groups all around the country, I used to be quite popular with them. Um, uh, you would constantly hear, we got to get rid of the Rockefeller Republicans. We got to take on the establishment, the liberal Republican establishment. At a time when, first of all, the Rockefeller Republicans were, you know, turning into oil in Cretaceous soil. They've been gone for so long, right? And the um, and the establishment, even under John Boehner, was more conservative than any Republican leadership in in, in seventy years. But there is this myth that is perpetrated by these other institutions that have power, like talk radio, like some my friends at Fox News, who tell you that there are these powerful forces in the establishment really running anything. And the irony is they're not running anything because they're so unbelievably weak. So at least giving them some power would give them the tools to be forces of moderation and police their own brands. But right now, with the exception of Mitch McConnell, I'm hard pressed to think of an individual or an institution that actually, I mean, the Republican Party doesn't, you know, is no, no, no temper on Donald Trump's behavior. Imagine if you had the scene we had with Nixon where the party elders walk up to the White House and tell him it's time to go. Trump, what does it get the hell out of my office? You know, um, that's all I'm saying is that a healthier society has more institutions with power to be countervailing forces. But again, I'm ranting again. I apologize. Well, I, I feel like... The, I saw a version of this on a really small scale work earlier in my career. I started out covering politics in New Jersey, which which is a fun experience. I, I've got stories that will, will last a lifetime from that. It will burn the idealism off you pretty quickly. I, 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 yeah, I yeah. I, I got there. I got there as Bob Torricelli was being forced out of the 2002 Senate race, um, <laughs> and I stayed there for Jim McGreevy. I mean, it was it was a very dramatic time in New Jersey politics. But one thing that struck me about 
learning it at the local level was New Jersey is a state where, and I think this is still true now, um, but to a surprising degree, political machines still existed and still thrived. Um, mm -hmm. And they thrived in New Jersey. Um, the other thing I learned was for the, the perspective of these political machines, national politics was an afterthought. They were interested in national politics only to the extent it affected voter turnout and the likelihood of their local political machine surviving and, and, yeah, and winning. Yeah. And, and it mattered because it was jobs, it was contracts, it was power locally. Um, and New Jersey enforced this. The parties would enforce this through something called the line. Um, and they still have this. The, the local county political organization, the, the Essex County Democratic Organization, has a line, a designated line in the primary on the ballot. It's the first thing people see in the ballot. Every candidate for every office that the party's going to sponsor runs on it. It's very prominent. It's got the official seal on it. It looks very important. And then anybody who wants to run against that is basically exiled to the central time zone unless they can perform these incredible feats of organizing and get their own slate. And basically, the lines in local races were undefeated. It was impossible mm. to beat them. And so if you wanted to run locally, you had, the process was called screening. You would go to the county screening committee. It was you know, a handful of party leaders. They would interview you. They would make the decision. And if you didn't like the decision, wasn't much you could do about it. Um, and, and so I, I, I felt like I've always told people in, in some ways I'm, I'm a believer in machine politics because I think at the local level, I could see this work in parts of New Jersey. I could, there were lots of bad things that came with this. In, in, in some places, yeah. this could be, this could open the door to corruption. This could insulate you from a lot of scrutiny. Um, but I think there was an efficiency that it, that it kind of developed um, but I think the key was the reason it worked was you're talking about offices that the average voter never thinks about. You're mm -hmm. talking, you don't have huge voter turnout. Nobody gets excited about a freeholder race. No, even a state legislative race, nobody gets that excited about. Um, and so they were, you mentioned the comparison to McConnell. That's what made me think of it. You know, McConnell operates in an environment in the Senate where um, he's pretty safe to win reelection in Kentucky in these polarized times. And that's it. He's willing to take a 25% favorable rating in a national poll. He's willing to take, you know, all of his critics in, in the media or culture or wherever who want to rain down, you know, um, fury on him. He's willing to take all of that and, and just not care. And the source of his power is senators in his own party and voters in Kentucky. And he's able to manage that. He doesn't have to answer to anybody else. So I, I think this, the, the sort of thing you're describing is the more limited the constituency you can get, the more you're able to sort of exercise that way. Yeah, which is one which would I would argue is one reason maybe think about getting rid of primaries, because then the constituency is a couple thousand Republican activists and office holders who make these calls at conventions. But all right, since yeah. you brought up the Senate, we've gone along here and I apologize for all my filibustering again. But uh, you brought up the Senate. How does it look right now for Republicans holding it or Democrats taking it? Yeah, I mean, again, so that this is uh, all the caveats withstanding. Yeah. Right. And I just did think about how how you think the presidential election is going to go is going to have a lot to, to do with this, too, because I can remember in the in the fall of 2016, um, we were all talking about uh, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin was done. And then yeah. Trump wins Wisconsin. And there you go um, to me in Pennsylvania, you know, same deal. So if Trump, you know, performs surprisingly well, that can change this. Um, dramatically. That said, you look at um, the map right now, Republicans will get Alabama. I'm, I'm confident of that. That will be a, a pickup for them. Doug Jones, the Democrat, I just don't see that. Um, okay, now where are Republicans vulnerable? Arizona, all of the the, the polling out of Arizona from McSally um, looks terrible right now. It looks like the Democrats have recruited a strong candidate. You look at the trends in Arizona, um, 
long-term demographic political trends, the 2018 midterms, the polling we've seen out of there, you know, Maricopa County, Phoenix area. I mean, this is, this is a very fertile sort of suburban area for Democrats um, to make gains in the Trump era. So Arizona looks really, really shaky for Republicans in Colorado state um, that went blue in 2016, certainly expected to go blue in 2020. Cory Gardner in, in huge trouble there. Susan Collins in Maine, somebody who has defied the, the national tide in her state before. 2008, she ran for re-election in Maine. Barack Obama won the state in a landslide. Collins managed to get re-elected. Um, it looks like that magic, to look at the polling up there, it looks like that magic she's had is, is wearing off. Um, you know, I'm having a hard time seeing it with Collins. And you start looking, I, I've been looking at Tillis in North Carolina, and that's, I, North Carolina to me right now looks like a, a sleeper state. I mean, it was, Trump was able to put it away by a couple points in, in 2016. Um, I don't think it's, you know, Obama was able to win it once. I don't think it's entirely out of reach for Democrats when, again, you look at Charlotte area, you look at the, um, you know, Raleigh, the Triangle, there, you, there are some areas where Democrats um, can make some, some gains there. And, if, if Biden say split the difference between Hillary's African American turnout and Obama's, I mean, it's a lot to ask Biden to get Obama's, but it's also not that much to ask to beat Hillary. So, say he splits the difference between those two. Do you think he can't carry someplace like North Carolina? Yeah, because that puts him in a range. Look at it this way: that the black turnout with uh, John Kerry in two thousand four was fifty eight percent. The black turnout with Obama at the top of the ticket was sixty six, sixty seven percent, and the black turnout with Clinton was again fifty eight. So if you're talking about getting to 62%, you're yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. getting to a level that no Democrat except Barack Obama has ever gotten to. Yeah, I didn't realize the spread was that big. Um, okay, and then, so that that gets you, so if, if Tillis, if you pick up Alabama, but you lose North Carolina, Colorado, Maine, and Arizona, how many of the Republicans, and now I'm forgetting. Well, then, and then the other variable, too, is who's elected president and who's vice president, you know, that's break right, the that's tie. Right. Was, so I think if, if you're getting a Biden presidency in that combination, the Democrats, you know, have control. Okay. I'm, I'm, I have one other mischievous question that I forgot to ask you before. Um, this is something that uh, actually having talked to a goodly number of people on the Republican side, I will not name any names, who want to be president of the United States one day um, and talk to people who are in their orbit in larger numbers. Um, do you think, let's say that Trump is looking bad come August. Do you think a, if he dumped Pence, A, would that actually hurt him with any evangelicals? And B, who do you think he would need to pick that would actually help him in a way that would counter the 800-pound gorilla problem that he has of being Donald Trump? Yeah. Um, I'm skeptical. I, I, I see a lot of assumptions that Pence was the key to Trump getting, you know, 82% of the evangelical vote in 16. I'm, I'm skeptical of that. Um, and even if that's true, which I don't think is true, the idea that he now needs Pence again after he's changed this relationship with evangelicals just strikes me as right. totally unpersuasive. Right. right. No, I agree with that. Everything, everything I was saying earlier about how, how skeptical in general I am about, about vice presidential candidates. Um, the conversation reminds me a lot of the summer in 92 and, and you know, could Bush you know, switch Quayle out? And, and, and there was uh, apparently some effort made there, but Quayle was not interested in playing ball. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if Trump were to do that, 
Um, the one that you, I think you think immediately about is Nikki Haley. Um, mm. And because what's the big struggle that, that Trump has, in particular in polling suburban women, um, would Nikki Haley, would the presence of a Nikki Haley on the ticket um, assuage some of those um, profound reservations that suburban women seem to have about Donald Trump? Could it help him shave off five points of his deficit there? That could make a big difference. I, I'm very skeptical a vice presidential candidate could do it. But if he were if he were thinking in terms of a switch, that that to me seems like the direction to go. Somebody who speaks to those suburban voters, particularly suburban female voters who have voted Republican in the past and who seem just very uncomfortable with Trump and who voted Democratic in, in 2018. Yeah. Okay, last question. Oh, and full disclosure, people, my wife worked for Nikki Haley. Um, uh, I'll just leave it there. Take whatever conclusions you want from that, you will. Um, before we're talking about the unrepresentativeness of sort of blue checkmark woke Twitter, um, I'm just going to take it as a given you have better sources in that world than I do. Um, what is this obsession that I, I find no place else except basically on blue checkmark woke Twitter, Twitter with the tyranny and perfidy of having the United States Senate be basically exist, right? That, <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it, 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 there have been more wasted pixels on this <laughs> idea that the Senate is tyrannical. And I say, and when I say wasted, I mean primarily just in the sense that you're never going to get rid of the Senate. You know, I mean, like how, you're going to get the Senate to vote on getting rid of the Senate. I mean, um, and, uh, or that the idea that, that set the Senate should just be, you know, popularly representative as well. You're never going to get states to agree to that in a constitutional convention. But it is this go-to thing, um, which kind of gets to my whole thing about how, you know, you need institutions to right. be bulwarks against the popular tide. That's why you have the Senate. Um, is this something that, like, people, like, get worked up <laughs> in in the MSNBC green room? Is this something, <laughs> I mean, like, well, I, I don't get it. Well, I haven't been in the green room in too long, to be honest. And they're, they're pretty empty <laughs> these days. But I, yeah, no, I've 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 heard it too, and it 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 seems very much um, of a piece. We we're talking about the activist class, the, the 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 folks you're more likely to see on Twitter, and, and who drive a lot of the conversation. I think a big animating force for them is the reality of Al Gore in 2000 wins the popular vote, loses the electoral college. 2016, Hillary Clinton. The fact that it's Donald Trump who benefits from that. When you start looking at cumulative popular vote for the House and, and these sorts of things, I think there's a, there's a lot of attention um, uh, to the idea um, that from the, the Democratic standpoint, hey, we've got the votes, we're getting screwed by the system. I think that sense um, is what's driving it. But I, I, I would note that I think this connects to the, the, the conversation we were just having about the idea of, of um, a little bit less direct influence at these conventions and in these primaries. Here's where the Democratic Party and, and the force you're describing here is is working in the exact opposite direction. Look at caucuses in, in Democratic uh, presidential nominating processes. They had 14 caucuses in 2016. They were down to, it was going to be four for 2020. Mm -hmm. These things are vanishing. And caucuses are much more, I think, what you're describing. They are lower turnout. They are people who have made a commitment to the party, who are there not just for the presidential. Uh, they're activists. They're, they're, they're folks right. who are really active in the party. They're, and there has been this, and I think it connects with this this thing we're talking about. There has been this revulsion among that that crowd you're describing 
towards the concept of caucuses because they're not representative. There are they don't let the the folks who have to you know work at night and have a job uh, participate enough. And it what a difference it made. Um, in this case, it actually helped Joe Biden because Bernie yeah. Sanders' support was so concentrated among caucus voters. I mean, we, Washington State in in the caucus in 2016. Sanders got 73% of the caucus vote. State has 100 plus delegates. He got the lion's share of them. It's a big source of strength for him. They have a primary in 2020. He loses it. Um, yeah, that's yeah. that's the difference. But I, I think that's that's one of the, the things I see where the, 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 the sort of gravitational force in democratic politics is moving more and more towards democratize everything. Get a ballot mm-hmm. to everybody. Don't just wait for them to request it. Send it to them in the mail. Put a stamp on it. You know. So I, I, yeah. I think that's where the Democrats are moving for, for every election right now. And I, again, I think a, a big piece of it has to do with that electoral college popular vote split, which it's, it's amazing. I, I can remember writing pieces in the summer of 2012. We're talking eight years ago, talking about how, Ron, uh, excuse me, how Obama had a chance of winning the electoral college and losing the popular yeah. vote. The, the thinking on it has changed that quickly in, in, in a very short period of time. Well, I remember, I mean, I'm much, I'm, I'm much older than you, but, uh, I, uh, I remember reading Bill Schneider's in high school, I think, Bill Schneider's cover story for The Atlantic on the GOP's permanent lock on the Electoral College. Yes. That was grounded entirely on the fact that California would stay Republican forever. (laughs) Orange County. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. Well, Steve Karnacki, thank you so much for doing this. I know we went long. Um, Hope you'll come back sometime. but this was a great amount of fun. It's a fun conversation. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Steve has left the virtual studio. Um, I was glad to have him on. And uh, um, and again, I apologize to listeners. I know I've said this a couple times now, but um, it's rare we have a guest on that's so perfectly in the wheelhouse for me to rant about the stuff that I want to rant about that I used as an excuse. And um, hopefully I got a little of it out of my system and it won't be coming back as often about all this stuff, but it's sort of in my head these days. Um, I'm still down in Florida, starting to get legit hot, which kind of bums me out. Um, I'm also bummed out because the dogs discovered this morning that an armadillo lives underneath our back porch and nothing will ever be the same. Uh, Zoe is sort of like Sting in the original Dune movie, prancing around, screaming, I will kill him! Um, and, uh, it's, you know, I mean, I'm generally opposed to cute things, killing other cute things. I don't think armadillos are in fact cute. They kind of look like dinosaurs or small versions of those creatures from the, um, Hanna-Barbera Herculoids cartoon, but, uh, I still, I don't want it to die. And apparently they can scratch and claw and have, uh, uh, often have salmonella. So it's just, it's, it's making it more difficult to take them out on the beach because all Zoe wants to do is do a quick U-turn and grab some armadillo. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, thanks everybody for, for listening and the feedback. You know, I asked for more comments on the, the remnant page at the dispatch and you guys complied and I really appreciate it. I know I don't respond to a lot of them um, often and I should do it more Part of the problem is, is that it's, you know, I, 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 I feel like weird sort of dropping in and adjudicating between arguments between different people. Um, um, and so I try to avoid it. But nonetheless, really appreciate it. Uh, people really like the episode with Charlie Cook. Um, 
And because Charlie was so euphonious and mellifluous um, that uh, we decided we're going to have him do the closing line again on today's episode. And in no way should this be construed as me forgetting to ask Steve Kornacki to say, no, you won't. This is a podcast. That is a baseless slander that has no grounding in fact. Um, And uh, other than that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.